a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show. My fellow wrong thinkers, and uh, speaking of wrong thinkers, my friend Eric Peters joins us. Eric, how are you? As wrong thinkful as ever, and I thought of a gag that might be entertaining. I, I haven't decided whether I'm going to actually do this. My girlfriend and I were talking about getting a box of face diapers and then just kind of attaching them to every part of my body except my face, you know, wrapping them around my leg, on, on my chest, on my butt, and then marching into a place where they have the diaper decree while she films just to see what the reaction is. Okay, I would pay money to, to see that reaction. <laughs> But the only thing that prevents me from doing it is I, I recoil from these diapers in the way that I'm sure any uh, Jewish person who survived uh, the, the things that went on in Germany recoils from the sight of a Nazi armband. Uh, I can't stand the sight of the things because of what they, resent, uh, what they represent and what they're doing to this country. So I, I just I physically can't even touch one of the things. Well, I know you are faithfully posting diaper reports, and uh, yep. what's what's the latest word from out there? I, I mean, I, I try to keep up, but um, you're posting every day. Any anything exciting happening on the uh, the diapering front? Well, it's it's just interesting that there is such cognitive dissonance uh, going on, and in such close proximity. One of my diaper reports contrasted uh, the almost ubiquitous diapering at the Kroger supermarket in my area where I've been pretty much the only person without the diaper going shopping. And a mile up the road, there's my gym, where nobody is diapered. Now, the gym's been open for nearly two months. You would think that by now, if this virus were such a serious threat and we're all going to die, that at least one person out of that entire crowd of people who go to the gym every single day might have at least gotten sick by now. Nobody's gotten sick, let alone dead. You know, it's, it's pretty obviously clear at this point, but we're dealing with irrationality, which is really alarming. That's the problem. It's, it's about fear. Uh, it's about terror. It's not about facts. You can't reason with people who are irrational uh, and who have been psychoticized in, in, you know, to regard sickness as an omnipresent danger. That's the thing we have to fight against somehow, and I'm not quite sure how to do that. Boy, speaking of psychotic, I know you've seen the, the footage out of Melbourne, Australia, which apparently now is like the central point for where a, a COVID tyranny is being seen. You've yeah. seen the, the woman seized by the throat by a police officer for the crime of mm-hmm. walking down the street thinking she didn't have mm-hmm. to wear a mask. Yeah, that's right, and that's, uh, that's one of several such. Uh, they are resorting to absolutely extreme measures down under, which is really remarkable and startling because you used to think of Australia and New Zealand as being places that were more free than the United States. In fact, they're not. And I think that's because in those countries they do not have at least the, the fig leaf of legal protections embodied in our Constitution and the Bill of Rights, which I think thus far have somewhat restrained the Gesundheitsführers, whereas there the government can largely do whatever it wishes to do, and of course it does so. Well, I'm just wondering at what point can we safely call it tyranny? Because, man, I'm telling you, from what, what I saw, I can't see any functional difference between that and the kind of tyranny you would have received at the hands of Stalin's goons. Well, exactly right. And it, it oh, it depresses me and it demoralizes me because 
I see this this moment approaching where people will have to decide for themselves whether they are going to resist physically and fight back. Uh, I personally don't know whether I could stand uh, by idly and watch an armed government worker thug uh, do what was done to that woman without engaging. And that's a big step to take. No, I and I physically. I had the same reaction. I was watching it last night. My wife was like, "What's with all that terrible language I'm hearing?" And I'm like, "Yeah, you're not going to believe what I'm watching." And and she came over and looked yeah. at it, and and that was my comment was, "I don't know if I could stand there and let that go on unchallenged." That's right. That's right. And they're you know they're backing us into a corner. Most of us, I think, are good people, and, and we're we're trying to act in good faith, and we certainly don't want to harm anybody, and we don't want to be harmed ourselves. But when you witness something like that that's totally over the top, completely unnecessary, unprovoked, uh, gratuitous thuggery, how do you respond to that? Do you, you know, and, and how do you live with yourself if you don't respond to that in some way? Well, it's it's not like the the police are being uh, surreptitious about this. At least in uh, you know in in Melbourne. I mean, uh, last week I, I shared an audio clip of their police commissioner talking about how well you know, and unfortunately at some of our our uh, checkpoints we've had to break windows and drag people from their cars. Yes. Why? Because they didn't properly identify themselves, and you know, in the name of contact tracing, we need that identification. I'm like, wow, mm-hmm. that's that's yeah, a bold I, thing I to admit. That video also. And that fellow was wearing a, a black outfit that was very, very much reminiscent of something that Ernst Röhm uh, would have worn 90 years ago. Uh, you know, and to listen to uh, somebody with an Australian accent, uh, accent speaking, uh, you know, as Chef der SA, you know, in Germany in 1933 is really, really hallucinatory, alarming, uh, baffling and terrifying. OK, so here's the thing, Eric. Play play devil's advocate with me for a moment and tell yeah. me. I, I know there are people, there's a strong contingent of people out there who feel like these masks are essential. And I mean, you'll see videos of them yelling at people and accosting people yeah. here and there. But where is the danger? Where are the bodies, I guess, is more what I'm trying to ask. I don't see the deaths lining up to show that, oh, no, this really is a clear and present danger. Well, there aren't. In, in fact, they, they haven't been stacking up for months, which is why I think you and I have discussed this before. The, the fear organ, the corporate media fear organ, no longer really talks about the deaths. They talk about the cases, the cases, the cases, endlessly, as a way to, to subtly conflate the idea of death uh, with something that is in and of itself a triviality. A case? Okay, so what does that mean without context? How many cases of the runs have happened in the last six months in this country. Generally, people don't die from it. You know, you feel not so great for a day or two and your system resets and you're okay. It's vicious and despicable that the corporate media does not provide the context. It's one thing to say 5,000 cases were reported in the county today, but not to say, well, and one person died. Right. Which they don't say. And that that's egregious and it's deliberate. It's a pattern. You can see this. It's not an isolated case of some Geraldo type uh, tabloid journalist deliberately trying to whip up hysteria and fear. It is a concerted, organized effort by the corporate mainstream media to do precisely that. You published a column last week about uh, about the con that is being pulled on us regarding Wu flu. And in particular, um, you have someone you have a friend who is within the bowels yeah. of the sickness apparat. Tell, yes. tell us about what that person revealed to you. Well, this is a two-parter. The first part, she revealed something to me that I had been unaware of. Now, this person is well-placed within the medical establishment, and I can't go into any further details other than to say that this person is a very credible person, uh, told me that uh, one way that doctors are trying to help 
their patients who will come in for some uh, illness or procedure that has nothing to do with the Wu flu, uh, which will be very expensive for them when they get the bill, is to code it in medical lingo, code it. You know, when you, when you, when you fill out a health care form for the insurance mafia, they code what, whatever they do to establish what you're going to pay, to code it as corona-related because under the current regime, uh, these people will not get the same bill or maybe get no bill at all. And so the doctors think that they're doing their patients a favor, but this also helps to inflate the case count. And related to this, and which is never reported, again, just like the whole thing about the, the deaths in context of the cases, is that there is a financial inducement for every single corona case that is reported by these hospitals and doctors uh, to be cataloged by the corporate media. It's astounding. It's something on the order of, I think it's 18 and as high as $30,000 per reported case. Now, riddle me this. If, if it were found out that I was getting checks from General Motors every week uh, to write uh, reviews of General Motors products, do you suppose it would destroy my credibility as a car journalist? Yeah, there'd, there'd be a question. Is, okay, is he, is he shooting straight? Yeah. Now, the media, the corporate mainstream media, does not ever report this, this financial incentive to inflate the case count. These hospitals are making book. They are making a fortune off of corona. And because of that, everything that is being reported about the cases, the cases, leaving aside any questions about the, the, the way that these cases are being tested for, is inherently suspect given that. And it's egregious. It's egregious and despicable that the corporate mainstream media is not revealing the financial aspect of the corona case reporting. We've got a break here in about a minute. But, Eric, what is the incentive? What, what's in it for the media to tow this particular narrative's line? Well, there's several things. You know, when, when we talk about the media, I now, I now uh, always couch it with corporate media. It's largely all the same entity, and it's run and controlled by a handful of corporations, and they're trying to put out the same message. And they do it for a variety of reasons. One, simply, is that hysteria sells. Uh, they think that by whipping up all of this fear, they're going to get people's eyes glued to the tube, and they'll make more money that way. I also think there's a, a more sinister motive afoot, and, and, and it is that a lot of the corporate mainstream media is virulently left-wing, and they see this hysteria and fear that's being whipped up and all of the lockdowns and restrictions and everything else as being a tool to deal with their bete noir, the orange man, to get rid of the orange man. I've come to believe that is one of the, the, one of the, the, the probably the most powerful motives behind the way this narrative is being spread out to the general public. Okay, Eric Peters is my guest. We'll be back after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our fellow wrong thinkers, Eric Peters, has joined me, and we're talking about uh, current events, which a lot of the current events uh, evolve and revolve around uh, COVID-19 and coronavirus and, of course, the masks. And, Eric, uh, I, I want to get your take mm -hmm. on this because I've seen this in a couple of your columns. Talk to me about the kids who are being kabukied with this uh, sickness theater. Yeah, that hits a nerve. I'm not a parent, but I like kids, and it depresses me to see children uh, walking around with these diapers over their faces because unlike us adults, 
who can understand the context. And, you know, we realize what this is all about. These kids have no clue. All they know is that they're being told by their parents that there's this death in the air and they better put on that diaper because they're going to die otherwise. So what they're doing is pathologizing an entire generation of children who are going to probably need years and years of therapy because they've been turned into these fear-addled anxiety muffins, as we talked about a little bit uh, before the break. And it's, it's appalling that they're doing this to kids, of all people. It's the most despicable thing I can think of. Well, and, and the, the pop culture is even seizing this now. I know you put a post up this morning about cryptonic diapering. Tell us about that. Oh, yeah, this came across the transom this morning. So some of the stock superhero figures like Superman and The Flash, apparently the creators of these heroes uh, have decided to portray them this fall in the rebooted series uh, as wearing the diaper because now, you know, Superman doesn't have to worry about kryptonite any longer. He has to worry about the coronavirus. Uh, (laughs) I mean, it's all, again, about conditioning, and it's marketed directly toward kids who uh, are being pressured to see these sorts of images and associate that with with the proper and right thing to do and and to be ter- to be scared to be in fear all the time this is a doubling down on what i've talked about before occurred in the 90s with the millennials when the the first child safety seats and all of that stuff came into play which uh resulted in my opinion in kids who grew up terrified uh of cars cars are unsafe there's danger everywhere and rendering them into passive, fear-addled little anxiety muffins. And people like that always look to other people to tell them what to do, and specifically to these busybodies and these control freaks in government who always offer the solutions to people who are in, in search of them. Yeah, without a doubt. I I feel for, for the little kids, too, who you know can't compute this, but um, I, feel, I feel bad for the adults who have surrendered, you know, and... And I, I yeah. hope that doesn't sound condescending. I really sincerely empathize with them. But at the same time, there's a part of me that just wants to give them an ever so gentle kick in the seat of the pants and say, come on, can you not see of the course. bigger context of what's happening here? Of, of course. As an, I think as a parent, you have an obligation to protect your child, obviously. And part of protecting your child is not allowing them to be terrorized um, irrationally by people who are peddling fear of everything. Uh, you know, if I were a parent, whatever it took, I would make sure that my kid realized that death is not in the air. I would homeschool my kid if need be. Uh, I would not make my kid put on a diaper to go shopping. In fact, I would serve as an example to my kid by not putting on the diaper and explaining why daddy isn't putting on the diaper. Let's. I'm going to shift gears here for a moment. You also had a, a column recently published called Conversion. And I thought this was very, very timely uh, because this is something that's that's becoming clear to a lot of people. It looks like cash is rapidly becoming something that was as opposed to something that is common uh, for for using for for tender. Yeah, sure. Uh, Up until this, you know, this 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 manufactured crisis um, came into being, it was prudent and reasonable to put aside a little bit of a a money in a rainy day fund for just in case. You never know when your job might go away or a big expense might come up, and it was just smart to have some money put away for that purpose. But now, given what's going on, it's it's entirely possible that the money that you've put aside could be worth next to nothing a week from now depending on what happens with the money supply. And there's the additional potential problem of the government simply deciding that, okay, you have to turn in your cash, and in exchange you'll be given at at a reduced exchange rate some sort of electronic credit for this cashless society. 
that they want to impose on everybody. Uh, this sort of thing is is not conspiracy. It's happened before. Um, people might remember that back in the 1930s, Franklin Roosevelt outlawed gold and passed an executive order that required everybody in the United States to turn in the gold that they had. And if they didn't, it was a criminal offense. That sort of thing has happened before, and it certainly could happen again. And the thrust of my article is that now it might be a good idea to put aside actual goods for just in case, things that you can still buy with your money, um, including one of the things that I added actually as a postscript to the article, if you have animals, pet food. You never know when you might not be able to buy it anymore. It might be a good idea to buy six months of cat food or dog food or feed for your animals now while you still can. No, I, I completely agree. And and to underscore what the the point that you're making that tangible items will have value if if even if your pieces of paper with the president's pictures on them don't. Um are you familiar with sure. Matthew Matt Bracken? Have you ever heard of him? Yes, yes, I have. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I I saw an interview that he did. Uh, actually, I guess it was just a podcast he did uh, within the last couple of weeks. He talked about ammunition being the new mm-hmm. currency, and I never yes. I never heard it put quite like that. But he uh, he yep. said, "Look, you know, the dollar's falling in value. Gold is rising in it. Well, not rising, but the price of gold is going up. You know, because of inflation." And then he held up a, a cartridge and said, "Yep, this is a dollar." He goes, no, seriously, yeah. go, go try to buy ammunition right now, and you're going to find you'll pay anywhere from 30 cents to a dollar for every single one of these. And his point was He's 100% right. Stock mm-hmm. up on that. If you're going to spend your cash, ammo is a great store of value because you can, there, there will always be need for it. People will pay dearly for it if it's difficult to come mm-hmm. by, and, and it's not going to lose value. That's right. Uh, lead and, and brass are the new precious metals. And actually on two levels, as Bracken explains, um, the first is it's convertible. Uh, you know, let's say the worst doesn't happen, and hopefully it won't, uh, and you have all this ammunition that you bought, you'll always be able to sell it or trade it for something uh, of comparable or even greater value. Uh, but if the worst does come to pass, having the ability to defend yourself and your family, having the ability to hunt if you need to, uh, you, how do you put a price on that? That's invaluable compared to the worthless pieces of paper with pictures of dead presidents on it. Yeah, I mean, it's it just underscores the point you made, that, that and that is, look, if the cash flow stops, what do you have that retains value? And tools mm-hmm. and goods, um, farmable land might be another thing. And there's another aspect there, and I'd like to get your take on this. What about skills? Oh, without question. Uh, it's a very good idea to bone up on things that are not, not only useful to you and your family, but which can be bartered for other things that you or your family may need. Good example, if you know how to weld uh, and uh, your neighbor doesn't, you can exchange your services as a welder if something needs to be welded in exchange for, let's say they've got a garden, they, they've grown food, and they've got some nice uh, canned tomatoes and beans and so on. And now you and your family get to eat. So things of that nature are always valuable, even not in a crisis. The more, the more you know, the more independent you are, and the less you have to pay other people to do these things for you. I'm not trying to sow any seeds of panic, but I think uh, as March of this year recedes into the distance and our memories start to fade a little bit, People should stop and think about that queasy feeling they had when they went into grocery stores or Costco or whatever, and the shelves were bare of certain items. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, we could conceivably face other shortages. This would be a really good time, while there's plenty of stuff on the shelves, to quietly and consistently get stocked up. 
Yeah, people should remember, too, that right now the economy is a kind of Potemkin village, a facade. It has been propped up now for several months by the federal government dumping money into people's pockets in the form of that weekly four or $600 check and the loans and all of these other things. But at some point, the musical chairs or the music is going to stop playing. Uh, the government can't keep paying people not to work indefinitely. And when that happens, when that happens, there are going to be lots of people uh, who no longer have the ability to provide for themselves. And the whole awful machine may come grinding horribly to a shuddering stop. And that's the time when you'll, not, when you'll want to have the things that you need available in your house and not have to go with the stampeding herd down to Walmart to try to snatch the last roll of toilet paper off the bare shelves. Eric Peters has been my guest. His website is epautos.com. Eric, until next week, keep wrong thinking. I will do my very best. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Got to take a moment here to uh, give a quick shout out to one of my sponsors, and that is firesteel.com. I am so happy to have them on board as a sponsor of The Brian Hyde Show, and it's because they have a product that I think is actually highly useful. Now, whether you're a hardcore prepper or just somebody who believes in, you know, I'm going to hedge my bets and make sure that I am capable of taking care of unforeseen circumstances. That's probably the category I find myself in. I mean, I, I want to be prepared for the unexpected. That's the difference between it being an ordeal or just being an adventure. Well, having the ability to start a fire without having to carry with you hundreds or thousands of matches or lots of lighters, which can eventually run out of fuel, get yourself the Fire Sparkers from Fire Steel, very high quality, made with these incredibly uh, rare earth minerals that uh, they, I, I don't know how to describe the spark other than you should go to their website, firesteel.com, and see for yourself. It throws an amazing spark, like you could light a propane grill with it from a couple of feet away, just cast the spark at it, boom, there it goes. But best of all, it will spark a fire even when it's wet. You just wipe it off, strike the spark. You can't do that with matches. So check them out, firesteel.com. When you find the one you like or when you find the ones you like, because they're affordable enough, you'll probably want to get several. Make sure you use my name, Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, at checkout. They'll give you a nice discount. That's firesteel.com. So I was looking at the calendar and we are one month away from the 19th anniversary of September 11th. And I'm not, this is not an invitation, therefore let us wallow in, you know, what happened. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of observations, probably more so next year as we hit the 20th anniversary. But it sparked something in my mind that, uh, that really got me thinking about how much the world changed. And we used to kind of tongue-in-cheek joke around about, well, you know, the fabric of time and space itself changed following 9-11. In fact, that was the, the catchphrase, 9-11 changed everything. 
And you think about it, uh, look at all the different things, um, not just, you know, the fact that now when you go to the airport, you know, you've got to submit to either a virtual strip search or the nice person in blue gloves has to touch your pee-pee in order for you to get on the plane. No, I'm talking about things like as simple as um, opening a bank account or whatever it may be that involves money in the name of fighting terrorism. There are very strict, suspicious activity reports that banks are required to give. I don't know what the threshold is these days. At one point, it was anything $10,000 or over. And if for some reason you, for instance, uh, deposited or withdrew $9,800 one day and then went back and uh, withdrew another $8,000 the next day, you could be taken to court. You could be charged with money structuring, which is a federal crime. Because there's the presumption that, well, only terrorists would do this, and that's you know, why you're probably doing it. I mean, your, your ability to get a job, your ability to get a driver's license, all of it changed. And that's not even going into all the domestic surveillance and how, how the nation's, uh, how can I put this, the surveillance apparatus turned inward on the American people. Just in case, you know, the better to see you with, my dear, as they keep a watch on everything you do, every website you visit, every text you send, every phone call you make. It's all being vacuumed up and stored just in case we need to figure out who you are and what you've been up to. Which, by the way, is just it flies directly in the face of the Fourth Amendment. They're not supposed to be doing this. Or, and even the Fifth Amendment, where's the where's the probable cause? The state should not be taking an interest in you. The government, I should say, should not be taking an interest in you unless there is probable cause that you are involved in a crime or you have been involved in a crime. But we're all potential criminals. We're all a commodity to be managed. And terrorism was the excuse to justify all of those abridgments of essential liberties. I mean, the power grabs were remarkable. And the, the worst thing about it this is the part that still keeps me up at night sometimes, is many of the suggestions con- contained in things like the Patriot Act, contained in things like the uh, the NDAA, which now you know gets renewed every year, which considers you and I as potential enemy combatants, meaning we are subject to, uh, how can I put this, extrajudicial justice, like being on the receiving end of a drone strike, according to someone within the national security apparatus saying, yeah. He's the bad guy. Let's take him out. You don't get a day in court. They decide you're a threat to national security. They can take you out. They do this a lot, by the way, overseas. Haven't seen it happen so much here in America, but give it time. What becomes, uh, you know, justified, you know, in one case will be justified in other cases. But it, it just sparks this this keen interest in. So terrorism was the excuse for this wholesale abridgment of our liberties because of September 11th. And former Congressman Ron Paul has a very solid explanation published today on LewRockwell.com about how coronavirus is the new terrorism in that same regard. And I like where he starts because he starts with with the massive amount of spending, which, by the way, there was massive amounts of spending that went went on with, uh, you know, the, the response to terrorism. I mean, how many trillions have we spent now in the global war on terror? Terrorism still exists. They're not going to eradicate it. Gee, I wonder if they'll do any better with the virus. Here's what Ron Paul says. He says, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has proposed the next multi-trillion dollar coronavirus relief spending bill that will support testing, tracing, treatment, isolation, and mask policies 
that have been part of a national strategic plan she's been advocating. The Trump administration is not opposing Pelosi's plan on principle. Instead, it's haggling over price. But even if the strategic plan could be implemented at little or no monetary cost, it would still impose an unacceptable cost in lost liberty. Pelosi's plan will lead to either a federal mask mandate or federal funding of state and local mask mandate enforcement. Oh boy. Those who resist wearing masks could likely be reported to the authorities by government-funded mask monitors. And he says we can label this the Stasi approach to health policy after the infamous East German secret police force. Ron Paul says contact tracing could lead to forcing individuals to download a tracing app. That app would record where an individual goes and alert authorities that an individual has been near someone who has tested positive for coronavirus. And the strategic plan could eventually include Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci's suggestion that individuals receive, quote, digital certificates indicating they are vaccinated for or immune to coronavirus. A certificate would even be required before an individual can go to work, to school, or even to the grocery store. The need to demonstrate vaccination for or immunity to coronavirus in order to resume normal life would cause many people to voluntarily, in quotation marks, receive a potentially dangerous coronavirus vaccine. Now, the Trump administration has already spent billions of dollars to support efforts of companies to develop a coronavirus vaccine. Policymakers have stated that once a vaccine is developed, it will be rushed into production and onto the market. He says supporters of expediting production and use of a vaccine should remember the 1976 swine flu vaccine debacle. The swine flu vaccine was rushed into production in response to political pressure to do something. And the result was a vaccine that was more of a danger than the flu. Unfortunately, those who raise legitimate concerns regarding the safety of vaccines are smeared as conspiracy theorists. This is the equivalent of stating that anyone who dares criticize our interventionist foreign policy hates freedom and is probably a terrorist sympathizer. Whew, more shades of 9-11. Ron Paul says the coronavirus panic has given new life to the push for a unique patient identifier. Now, the unique patient identifier was authorized in 1996, but appropriations bills since 1998 have contained a provision forbidding the federal government from developing and implementing that identifier. Well, unfortunately, two weeks ago, the U.S. House of Representatives voted to repeal the ban. The unique patient identifier would aid government efforts to track and vaccinate every American, as well as to infringe in other ways on liberty in the name of health. Politicians and bureaucrats, he says, cannot eliminate a virus any more than they can eliminate terrorism. What they can do is use terrorism, a virus, and other real, exaggerated, or manufactured crises to expand their power at the expense of our liberty. Politicians will never resist the temptation to use crises as an excuse to gain more power. Therefore, Ron Paul says it is up to those of us who know the truth to spread the message of liberty and to grow the liberty movement. A strong liberty movement is the only thing that can force the politicians to stop stealing our liberty while promising phantom security from terrorists and viruses. I'll have a link to this. I would encourage, if, if it strikes the right nerve, share this one with friends. He is so right about how these real, exaggerated, or manufactured crises 
are the perfect opportunity for politicians to expand their power at the expense of your liberty and my liberty. But they require our consent. And if you really know what your liberty is, you're not going to give them your consent. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Thanks for joining us here on The Brian Hyde Show. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but if you don't have time to gather around the radio like the family used to do when Little Orphan Annie would be coming on, or The Shadow or The Lone Ranger, if it's like the golden age of radio, um, I know not everybody has the chance to do that, not even around their digital devices. But if you find value in the stories, the commentaries, the essays, the guests that I have. I just want to let you know, I have show notes, very comprehensive show notes with links that you can follow and and explore at your own convenience and at your leisure. You can find them at thebrianhydeshow.com. Just look for the daily show notes. I also throw in my own annotations or my own observations. I don't go into a lot of detail. That's what I have the microphone for, right? That's that's where I can talk. But I just want you to know that's a resource that's available to you. And I share with you resources for wrong thinkers in that I've got a growing list of different websites and news aggregators and and guests that I put up there for for recommendation to my audience. It's I'm not saying, therefore, you must believe everything that these people say or write. But I'll tell you, if, if I put them on my resources for wrong thinkers page, it's because they have proven to be a great source of diverse, factual, or principled information in a time where there's so much, do I dare use the phrase, fake news out there that it's it's hard to tell what's real and what isn't. I think back to many years ago when I started to study the great books of Western civilization, and the very first book in that set, which was compiled back in, what, 1952 by the University of Chicago, I mean, it took like 400,000 man hours to bring all those great books together. The very first volume is a little one called The Great Conversation. And what it refers to is the great conversation of intellectual and philosophical and scientific and artistic philosophy and, and thought and the questions that have been asked throughout the ages. Now, we're talking 3,300 years of human history. And there are some consistent things that have come up time and time again over that period of time that uh, the human condition is, it's, I guess it's just natural. We wrestle with these things. What is love? What is justice? Uh, slavery, by the way, figures prominently. I don't think they approached it quite the way we did, but you know, the, the point is it's been a part of human existence for a long time. Sorry, New York Times, the, the 1619 Project, I'm sure it's, it's good for that whole intersectionality thing. But it doesn't necessarily reflect the reality that slavery is something humankind has struggled with pretty much as long as there have been humans. Interestingly enough, one of the subjects that comes up a lot has to do with the, the freedom of one's mind or, or conscience might be another way to put this. Right now we find ourselves in uh, the midst of a battle over our minds. 
In fact, notwithstanding, you know, the burning buildings and the fighting in the streets and intimidation of motorists and people just, you know, going about the business of life, I would say the the biggest battle that any of us face right now today is very likely going to be the one over our minds. And maybe you feel this. Maybe you uh, you understand that one of the greatest threats to what remains of our freedoms is the escalating campaign against freedom of thought. And yes, there are folks who will tell you, you can think this, you can't think that, do this, don't do that. Um, the idea, though, isn't so much that they're relying on the government to slap its you know, clumsy hand over our mouth and keep us from, from speaking or thinking. It's more a matter of self-censorship. And I'm, I'm going to post on the, uh, on the show notes page an essay from Richard Ebling. Now, I'm going to warn you, Richard Ebling is a brilliant guy. So when he writes about something, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't do it in haiku form. He gives you a very thorough treatment. The good news is, I mean, you will have a solid understanding of what's at stake by the time you read it. He doesn't write in, you know, uh, you know very academic, difficult-to-understand language. But he writes thoroughly. And he explains things thoroughly. And that's one of the reasons he is one of my go-to resources when I want to better understand something. And he has a terrific essay published on the American Institute for Economic Research, Self-Censorship and Despotism Over the Mind. I'm going to give you just a couple of quick excerpts, but I want you to take the time. Go to the com, look at the show notes for August 11th, and you can find this link and read it for yourself. Now, he starts by acknowledging the political atmosphere in the U.S. today is one of the most divisive and polarized in a very, very long time. In fact, in his lifetime, he says the only period with which he can compare it is the 1960s, maybe early 1970s during the Vietnam War and civil rights movement, when there were demonstrations on the streets of many cities throughout the country and episodes of destructive violence, along with calls for radical change. He says one difference between then and now is the increasing degree nowadays of self-censorship concerning politics and social issues. Now, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the Cato Institute releasing a very detailed survey on how people across the political spectrum are more and more fearful of sharing their political beliefs with others. And I bet money you have felt this as I have felt it too. Whether the respondents label themselves strongly liberal or liberal or moderate or conservative or strongly conservative, very noticeable numbers of them replied that they withheld telling about their political views out of fear of offending someone or getting into some type of trouble. Therefore, they're practicing forms of self-censorship. And he notes that of those categorizing themselves as strongly liberal, they were the ones who said they, they feared the least in speaking their, their point of view, whereas 77% of those who consider themselves conservatives or strong conservatives said, yeah, I fear to speak publicly because of uh, the fear of negative consequences. And I mean, come on, think about it. In a society where wearing a hat that says make America great again can get you physically assaulted and beaten on a city street, it's, we're not living in, in a very healthy atmosphere of, of uh, seeking after truth. So let's talk about this for a moment. A couple of quick excerpts from, from Richard M. Ebling. Common courtesy, self-censorship as a decent person. Now, this rings true because he says all of us practice forms of self-censorship all the time in our verbal and written interactions with others. We intentionally avoid saying things that are rude, crude, or offensive in our exchanges with others. It's just part of good manners, polite behavior, common courtesy. 
And while we all have, unfortunately, breached these at various times, he says we all know that it's just not the right thing to do or say something that will offend, hurt, shame, or humiliate someone. So let's not confuse that kind of self-censorship with the kind that's being imposed on us from without. Look, I I will confess something, and I am deeply ashamed, but uh, when I'm under extreme stress, I have a potty mouth. I... I don't like the fact that I use bad language. And so there, there is, I, I have a very serious commitment, both when I write and when I do my, my show, that I will not engage in trucker language. No offense to truckers. Sailor, no, no offense to sailor. Anyway, you get the idea. I don't want to offend people. But I'm, I'm just, I'm telling this because I openly acknowledge I swear, and I don't like the fact that I swear. It's a terrible habit I picked up a long time ago, but I do my honest best not to subject anybody else to my bad habit, my vice, because of respect for them. Now, that's how people used to conduct themselves, avoiding the use of vulgar language and slang phrases, because such a manner of speech, according to this article, is uh, the distinguishing mark of a bad education. And you think about that, we should study to speak and write in the best language we can command that we may not be forced to blush at our own crudeness when we are in company. But Richard Ebling points out how slipping benchmarks have allowed taboo subjects to become, well, uh, I want to say normalized, but, but we're talking about some pretty weird stuff. There was a time when what people did in the privacy of their bedroom was kept private. Deviancy or deviant behavior was not openly celebrated as, you know, this is uh, this is a good and healthy thing. And for those who maintain, well, that was those were bad times, Puritans, you know, the Victorians who just couldn't quite get their minds around what it was like to live in the real world. Okay. Drag Queen Story Hour. Four words that to me illustrate how far we have slipped in enabling uh, taboo subjects to become openly discussed. But you know what can't be openly discussed? Someone who says, hey, that's not right to subject children to it. Uh, I wish I could find the video. I'll see if I can find it. If I can find it, I'll post it in the show notes. But a pastor went to Drag Queen Story Hour at his local library in Southern California. And uh, and when they asked, are there any questions? His question for the participants was, how are you going to explain yourself to God when he holds you accountable for what you're subjecting your children to? The look on their faces was, first of all, fear and horror that they were being called out or at least held accountable. And then it turned to anger. And I'm talking literal wailing and hissing and screaming. And they, they chased this pastor out. His church was vandalized the following week. There are some things you really can't talk about. But men dressing in women's clothes and prancing around for the sake of little bitty kids? Oh, yeah, that's great. We should talk more about that. Okay, I think you see the point. Again, this will be in the show notes. A new essay from Richard M. Ebling. Stick around. Gary Welch joins me in Hour 2 of The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.